Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. One big thing that a lot of people are waiting for is their local gym to start opening. But how ready are gyms to reopen? For a lot of gym owners, there's a frustration in the lack of strict guidelines. Temperature checks, extra cleaning, and hand sanitizer are a must. But face masks, they still represent an uncertainty with some gym owners. And some gyms are letting customers decide whether to wear them or not. For more on how the first gyms are handling the comeback... We spoke to Hillary Pakowitz, contributor to the Wall Street Journal. So not every state, you know, agrees that gyms need to open in the first phase. But of the places that have, it seems like the states seem reluctant to put a real mandate down. They'll say things like recommend people wear a mask or they'll say that the gym should encourage people to wear a mask. It's very squishy and I think it's hard for gym owners to really know what to do. But there are a few things that they're very specific about the regulations. You have to separate equipment or, you know, turn off every other treadmill, for example, keep people farther apart. A lot of places are not allowing locker rooms to open yet and swimming pools and gyms. Nowhere are they allowing swimming pools and basketball courts and things like that are not open yet. As far as the way, let's say, a machine would get cleaned or something, if somebody is using it, do they stop usage of that machine until somebody can come and clean it? How is that type of thing working out? Most places are setting up disinfecting stations within easy reach of every machine. Every gym that I spoke to in states that they're opening, they've multiplied the number of hand sanitizing stations and disinfecting wipes. And they're telling customers to wipe down the equipment before and after they use it. And the gym staff themselves are wiping everything down. Some places are doing an intermission in the middle of the day at one o'clock and doing a deep clean of everything and then letting people back in. Others are just constantly, you have trainers who are now cleaners, basically, who are just wiping down all of the equipment all the time. You definitely want to be, you want the cleaning to be conspicuous at whatever <laughs> gym you go to. You want it to be very conspicuous. And if possible, you want them to have doors open, for example. Every doctor that I talked to said that they like air movement, exchange of air. Things should be wafting through. You want windows or doors open if possible. So Georgia, Oklahoma, Tennessee, they're among these handful of states that have allowed gyms to reopen in the first wave of business reopenings. Tell us a little bit about conversations you've had with people in these areas. Because there's a few differences. There's the smaller local gyms, there's the bigger chain gyms, and then there's even CrossFit centers, which all have their kind of individual quirks to them. Most of the places that I talked to, there were a few large gym chains that have reopened in places like Crunch, Planet Fitness, Gold's Gym. Those chains have all reopened and they have very corporate cleanliness policies that in a lot of cases are more strict than whatever state policies they have. And then the CrossFits and smaller gyms, they're a little bit on their own. I mean, the ones I spoke to in Georgia, they have the Centers for Disease Control right there in Atlanta. So I feel like they maybe are in a better position than most because some of their members work for the CDC. So they can ask them, hey, what do you really recommend? And most of the places, the instructors are required to wear masks. And as far as the members go, it seems to be optional. But 
some of the places like Orange Theory, for example, is making their instructors wear masks and goggles and they're requiring members to wear masks. So everyone is like fully covered and protected. Other places, they're making it more optional. And that really is down to like you as a gym member have to kind of weigh the risks and the benefits. Because now we know about, you know, heavy breathing and coughing and singing, the choirs, you know, that had the spread um, in other parts of the country. And the problem with, you know, the heavy breathing and then panting is that those particles go in the air, then they fall onto the machines. And that's what worries doctors the most. So it's really about cleanliness, space between people and your own comfort level. So the states are reopening slowly. Some of these gyms have started operations again. What has been the turnout? To the gyms? What has been the return of people so far? It's only been a week or two for most places, but all the gyms that I spoke to said that they're looking at about half capacity. They've limited the number of people that can work out at a time. A lot of places now you have to reserve your spot online ahead of time. Even if it's not a class, you just need to reserve your workout time, for example. But only about 50%, if that, of the amount of traffic that they would normally experience at this time of year, they're seeing. However, I will say that every gym I spoke to had new members join. And they say it's a combination of people just itching to get out of the house and do something. And also, people are much more aware of health and the implications of poor health and how sort of this virus has impacted people who are on the unhealthier end of the scales. And so a lot of the gyms said that they have a positive uptick in people saying, you know what, I really want to like take control and of my personal health and like start a new direction. Hillary Pockowitz, contributor to the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Another interesting development as the pandemic goes on, some companies are getting rid of hazard pay for essential workers, even as the dangers of working on the front lines persists. As businesses were shutting down, many of the companies offered bonuses or pay bumps to compensate people for the risk of working at supermarkets and other crowded workplaces. But that's no longer the case. Kroger walked back a $2 raise to employees. Target and Amazon are following suit later this month. For more on why hero pay is going away, we spoke to Anders Mellon, reporter at Bloomberg News. What's so interesting to me with this story is that it really brings to the fore that these workers, that society clearly cannot function without, they're kind of stuck in these jobs with less than ideal conditions and with relatively low pay. It's not like we didn't know that before, but it's just become so much more pronounced now. And when these bonuses and pay increases were starting to be granted in March, then I, since I cover compensation, immediately got curious about what's going to happen when society starts opening up again, because it just seems to me that these were very temporary in nature. And it's really hard for companies to pare back somebody's pay when you've given it out to somebody in the first place. We've seen that in the past few weeks, and I think we'll continue to see it throughout this month, that there's a ton of outrage about this because people are asking the questions. You called me essential last week, and presumably I'm still essential now, and I'm still at risk of contracting the virus, but you're not giving me the same amount of money that you gave me last week? What's going on here? And at the beginning of all this, these were the incentives for people to want to go to work. Obviously, everybody was very spooked about this and we're learning more every day, but this was very early when we knew very little about the disease and how it was spreading and how quickly and all. So these were these incentives. But right now, 
we're seeing what's happening with the economy. There's really no other choice but to keep working. And yeah, you're right. You're, they're taking these things away from them at this point now. We spoke to a few experts about this, and one of them made the point that when companies started granting these, it was because there were some people that needed to still be in the workplaces for things to go around, or they couldn't do their jobs from home, so they were granted extra money. But now others are coming back, so now you don't really have to offset them for coming in. And there is also the point that there's not a whole lot of other options out there. And many workers that I talked to for this story, they feel stuck between fearing for their lives and their family's health, but they can't really afford to lose their paychecks and health insurance because it's really hard to find another job now. So you're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place in a really just horrific way. And that's just really tormenting to a lot of people. And there's a lot of angst out there. What kind of comments have these companies such as Kroger, Amazon, and Target who are kind of eliminating this type of pay, what kind of comments have they made about this so far? They've said, just like what other retailers and restaurant companies and other, really all other companies are saying, which is we're taking this very seriously and we are reinforcing security and safety precautions for workers and for customers. The economy is not going to come back unless people really feel safe. And this is something that I think many companies are taking very seriously, which is good and necessary, of course. But then there's still the question that remains of We saw how essential this cohort of workers were in the past few weeks and that society doesn't function without them. And many of them still are at the bottom or close to the bottom of the pay scale, if you look at it overall in the nation. And why is it supposed to be like that? Why can we not pay those people a little more? Anders Mellon, reporter at Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Finally this week, as the coronavirus pandemic is ongoing, it's exposed a lot of flaws in the way business is done in the U.S., especially flaws in the supply chain. The great toilet paper panic of 2020 shows exactly how something so mundane represents a complex supply chain. Because of what is called just-in-time manufacturing and distribution, toilet paper is still only seen in limited quantities, and manufacturers are playing catch-up on back orders. Manufacturers have also had to adjust their packaging, which is why you might be seeing fewer options. For more on the crazy toilet paper supply chain, we spoke to Jen Fietchner, senior writer at Fortune. You know, it's so surprising because you expect to be able to go to the store and find toilet paper. I don't think people really even give that a second thought. You know, it's something we take for granted. And at the beginning, everyone said, don't hoard, stop panic buying. There is no shortage. But it became very clear, and it's very clear now, you know, more than two months into this pandemic, that there is a shortage. And there absolutely was. And it's not even just panic buying, it's the fact that people need more toilet paper at home. So all the toilet paper you might otherwise be using at work, or if you were traveling or going to restaurants, now you're using that at home. And so by some estimates, you're using 40% more than you would at home. And all kind of the consumer brands like Charmin, like Cottonelle, the kind you would use at work is totally different brands made by totally different companies. So the manufacturers of the stuff you're using at home, like Kimberly Clark, which makes Cottonelle and Scott and Procter and Gamble, which makes Charmin, they're seeing huge increased demand. And so if everybody's using 40% more at home than they otherwise would, and even buying more than that to have it in stock so they don't have to go to the store as often, then these producers are seeing huge increases. So if the store like Walmart or Costco is seeing 5x more demand than usual, that's hitting the producers kind of in a snowball effect. So they're seeing 500x increases in 
demand. And there's just no way that they can keep up with the production. Even those companies are actually going through any buffer supply, anything they had on hand, they've been selling even what they might normally keep just in case. So they've been going below even the low thresholds they already kept of toilet paper. And that's why it's so hard to find. So you mentioned Costco. Costco isn't even getting the full amount of toilet paper that it's ordering to keep up with demand. So they've actually had to stop selling it online because it's on what's called allocation. Allocation is usually something that they would do for the season's hottest video games or a really, really popular toy come Christmas. Now they're doing that with toilet paper. So stores can only get a fraction of what they're ordering, even places like Amazon. They're not even getting the full orders. And that's why it's still so hard to find even months into this thing. Yeah. I mean, I just went on Amazon earlier today to just to see what it was like. You can't get any really of the regular size packaging. The first thing that came up was a box for professional bulk boxes for businesses of 60 rolls, things like that. So you can start getting some of that stuff, but not kind of the regular stuff. And you were mentioning how some of the estimates were that people might need as much as 40% more toilet paper for their occasions. That's what the industry calls them, which is pretty funny. But sales were up nearly 71% year over year in these last few weeks through May 2nd. So they were just running at a deficit there. And a lot of what has to do with it that you wrote about is this kind of really complex supply chain. It's called just-in-time manufacturing and distribution. And because toilet paper is so big and hard to keep in a warehouse or something like that, they really only manufacture just enough for maybe two to three weeks of a supply because they can constantly keep making it, but it's a little less cost-effective to hold large amounts of it. Tell us about just-in-time manufacturing and how that whole thing works. So, I mean, if you think about something like toilet paper, you know, it's an extremely consistent demand, usually, right? It's kind of the epitome of a recession-proof product. No matter if times are good, if times are bad, people are pretty much using the same amount of toilet paper. It's just a matter of where they're using it. And this time it's at home. But because it's so easy to predict demand, usually, it's been this prime candidate for just-in-time manufacturing. You know exactly how much you need to order to put it in your warehouse because you already know how much you're going to sell in normal times. And it's really, really expensive to store more than that because, you know, think about it. It's huge. It's bulky. Even in your own cabinets at home or closets, you probably can't even store that much because people only have limited square feet. And so if you think about that on a warehouse scale, you know, whether it's Amazon, whether it's Walmart, they don't want like a mountain of toilet paper taking up all this space. So they're going to order just what they need for the week, maybe two, three weeks, and then they know they can get more coming in after that. But because everything sold out so quickly, they sold out weeks worth of supplies in about two days. Because of that, the manufacturers just can't keep up with that. And so they're going to be still running behind. And so this just-in-time manufacturing has completely fallen apart in the pandemic because the demand that people, you know, and the buying habits that people are buying so much toilet paper, just that behavior has completely upended the entire demand supply balance. So you can no longer predict how much people are going to buy. And when they're going to the store, like you said, when you see just one or two packages on otherwise empty shelves, people are just going to grab it because it's like a rare commodity now. So a lot of these companies have increased their production but they're still kind of running at such a deficit that they have so many back orders that they need to fill. Some are saying that these back orders are likely to last into the summer still. So there will be this kind of shortage, ongoing shortage for a little while now, which is kind of unfortunate. <laughs> but the other part of it is people will just say, well, hey, why can't they just make more? 
get some new machines or something like that. But that isn't really cost effective either. I think an additional paper machine would require an investment of up to $300 million for some of these companies. They're huge machines. They're so expensive. A paper machine might be two stories high. You know, and to come to build that kind of facility, it's just this huge investment. And part of it is, again, the bulky factor. Where are you going to keep it? How are you going to produce it? Or something that's just physically smaller, like Tide detergent or soap, you can produce that. You might just be able to open up one more assembly line to fill those bottles of detergent for only a few million dollars, under 10 million probably, whereas paper is just so much more space-consuming that they need these big facilities, and it's a much bigger investment. And if you think about it, no company is going to put down a $300 million investment just to keep up with demand for the duration of the pandemic, which come a year from now or maybe 18 months, hopefully, probably isn't going to still be our reality. So that investment isn't going to pay off. So there is physical limits to how much companies can produce, as well as just how much they're willing to produce, because nobody wants to be stuck with a huge amount of extra toilet paper. I'm sure you don't want to, I don't want to, neither does Walmart, you know, neither does P&G or any of the manufacturers. I like the little note, toilet paper really does grow on trees, mostly from eucalyptus trees in Brazil, which is just an interesting side fact of all of this, but importing it from all over there and this kind of thins out the margins. So making a whole new machine, just not really cost effective for a lot of these companies. What paper is made out of, it's called pulp. That's the commodity that goes into that. And so there are market prices, but at the same time, you can only raise the price of toilet paper so much before you get accusations of price gouging. People aren't going to just pay more for toilet paper because it's in higher demand. Consumers just aren't willing to do that. And so in order to keep this good cheap, the entire industry has cut costs wherever they can. I mean, if you think about it, people are ordering toilet paper online. It's pretty cheap already, and yet you have to ship it. So they have to cut costs wherever they can. And so that's why they're going to Brazil, simply because those eucalyptus trees grow faster than the trees that you might find in the US and Canada. So you can get a a 100 foot tree in something like six or seven years, whereas that might take 80 years in North America. And so the fact that they grow fast, they even grow faster than corn, makes them cheap, which enables companies to keep those margins down. And that's also why, you know, talk about the just-in-time manufacturing. You don't want to be paying for extra space to store it. You want to have the fewest people you know, on the most efficient machines as you can. And you are already running those machines as much as you possibly can. Because once you put the investment, you don't want them sitting idle for a third of the day. So these machines under normal times are already running something like 92%. During the pandemic, that's actually increased to 99.8%. So they're shutting off the machines as little as they possibly can. They've even reduced the number of different kinds of toilet paper they've produced. You know, So you might have ultra strong and ultra soft, but not gentle care or something like that, just because <laughs> you have to turn off the machines. So the machines are running basically 24-7 as efficiently as they possibly can to save money and to produce as much as they can. Jen Vietchner, senior writer at Fortune. Thank you very much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.